0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work.
1: Shopify.com work. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
2: Hey, welcome to the 344th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Benjamin willis Teff, Earl Martin, and Nathan Presley. Thanks for upping that patronage, Nathan. I'm Matt Enlow, And I'm Warren
3: Kaplan, and today we have Pat Bishop on the show. He is the creator, showrunner, director of Comedy Central, smash hit, three-season running, corporate, and the new show on Hulu called This Fool.
2: Pat would want us to say with a handful of other collaborators he doesn't want to take full credit
3: he's part of a team uh him and and two other filmmakers did corporate and then they created this fool and he talks about them but pat directed most of the episodes right he's credited as the director of both shows and yeah he's talented they all started in stand-up and comedy and didn't have like a ton of tv experience and then they they made these shows so now he's got four seasons of tv to across two networks under his belt and it's really fun and his show is about it takes place in south central it's about a guy who runs an organization called hugs not thugs that rehabilitates ex-gang members and uh kind of his experience with having uh, some family members that are getting rehabilitated there and it's a comedy half hour comedy on half so hour comedy
2: yeah w- we, we talk a little those. bit we truly we do We talk a little bit about how the show does such a really smart job of mixing highbrow and lowbrow comedy and ideas and, you know, that it wants to be unassuming, but really has a lot to say, all of which is really great. We also dig in on creating the visual identity of two very distinct looking television shows. It's a great conversation overall. It was really nice to talk to Pat. He's like a super fascinating guy at this point, super experienced and, you know, in a lot of ways, really sort of managed to hone his voice through resilience and maybe even a little bit of stubbornness. He was constantly like making sure that the show was inspired and that the ideas didn't get watered down. That's a main theme of the experience that he has throughout all of these. And so I thought, I found it really inspiring just to be like, oh, this is how you make something that's distinctive on TV.
3: And it's awesome that he was a previous guest. So yeah, about 250 episodes between his last appearance.
2: Oren, I'm just sitting around wondering what have you been working on lately?
3: Well, I'm glad you asked because I had this weird <laughs> thing happen today. I'm, so I'm in New York. I'm working on uh, some commercials. And um, we had a very long pre-production meeting today. You know, For people that don't mm-hmm. know, pre-production meeting in commercial world is... Where you get together with the agency people and the client people and you're like, hey, here's our location, here are actors, here's the wardrobe, here's the shot list, here are the storyboards, this is how it's all going down, like, here are props, do you have any any last minute notes? Today's meeting went pretty well, I thought. It was very long. Usually these meetings are, how long would you say it's your average PPM?
2: Ideally, you're done in an hour. They can go faster, honestly, depending on how in the loop people are, but like 45 is kind of like the ceiling for most meetings, I would say.
3: I was there from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: <laughs> that's, that's seven hours. We were talking about the plan for like five of those hours, maybe. Yeah. Was seven hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We did such things as like, hey, let's pick extras in the middle of the meeting, um, you know, from a list of potential background actors. We acted out um, the entire script uh multiple people <laughs> in the, in the meeting did
2: that that's that's a new one that's a new one
3: <laughs> we should figure out like what this feels like is when we're on set we're gonna have these actors do this hey we should act out the parts that we're gonna ask the actors to act so that we have in our minds the difficulties of that because it is actually like a kind of a nuanced action that we're asking our actors to do that's like both comedic but also like a downer but we want them to play it up and it's like kind of could be confusing what exactly Mm -hmm. they're communicating with their body language. So I guess
2: I'm really in favor of this in a certain sense. Like I like to do all of the voices in my animatic for that precise reason to know how Mm -hmm. fast you have to say things, what sort of spin you're trying to put on all of that. I think that there, there is something really, really valuable to that. That is unique for a PPM. (laughs) I, uh, I would bet that I will never do that
3: yeah i i kind of appreciated it in this weird way
2: this is actually this is really helpful for listeners at home when i'm doing a ppm you know you've got the powerpoint presentation up and i'm literally walking people through slide by slide And it'll go Mm -hmm. faster or go slower based off of how familiar they are with the material that I'm presenting and the feedback. Exactly. If it's like, you know, Oh, we're, we're making the final decisions on actors. Here are our two choices. Maybe I'll even have their tape embedded or whatever. But I always know what we are going to be talking about because I have all of the slides in order. And when, UV or off of those like production
3: meeting where the producer is like kind of doing the intro and kind of just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. To you and the storyboards come
2: yeah sometimes sometimes it kind of depends on the relationship with the like client you're not
3: talking about parking and schedule and stuff like yeah that,
2: for the most for the most part I'm not um i in my college humor days I used to run the whole thing mm-hmm. like um but but yeah like for the most part there's the logistics producers will deal with and then the creative will I'll deal with but it, again it kind of depends if the producer has gone back with the client for years and years they might do a little bit more if i know them a little bit better sometimes i'll take a little bit more but my point is is that like typically you know what you're going to be talking about because you're in control of what's on the powerpoint deck and and therefore that kind of guides the conversation but the the when you know things are off the rails so to speak when you're talking about something that is not in the powerpoint at all not on the deck not up on screen and that's what it sounds like you just kind well, of we like didn't
3: know i mean we had we had a long deck um but it had all the regular things in it mm-hmm. we were taking a really long time like someone talked about the table of contents for like 10 minutes <laughs> and someone else oh. was like so tell us what we're gonna talk and go over today and then someone else was like okay well we're gonna start talking about key personnel where we just introduced you know like and it was mm-hmm. um we we're just kind of like slowly going through it but then a we pace got to, like, was
2: set at the beginning is what you're saying yeah. yes
3: but then like when we got to like the color of the set it was like hey um we sent you this pantone color and the benjamin moore paint identification and the production designers like i only got the pantone color i never got the band we had to go to a science lab to get this color because you can't take a pant like i mean we must have spent 40 minutes just talking about the color of one wall on the set like i mean it was just such a long meeting but but the crazy i mean everyone knew that we mm-hmm. had like a heart out at it four and we started at nine so and you know we kind of started really like 10 ish like mm-hmm. it, it, yeah you, it's what you're saying instead of this pace but the interesting thing at the end of the meeting, someone from the company pulls me aside. Everyone's already kind of gone. I'm like one of the mm-hmm. last people there, and they're like, "Oren, um, you, uh, you like need to smile more." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, "What?" <laughs> um, and this person was like. You know, I know that there's like a lot of things are changing. There's some you're mm-hmm. tired, you just flew mm-hmm. in. There's like frustrations about this and that. Like, you mm-hmm. want to get everything perfect, and we, you work so hard, and we all love you, and we think you're great. Mm-hmm. You're da, 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 da. But, like, you need to be happy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. the client and the mm-hmm. agency, they need to see that you are excited about everything, that you're enthusiastic, that you, you know, they want to know that it's going to be great, and they look at you to determine. Mm-hmm that this is great how, so how it's going yeah someone comes in with the wardrobe and you're not loving it then they're like is this bad and and i was like okay was i not enthusiastic? like i felt like i was making cracking jokes just being hanging out mm. being normal being honest talking about the things that i think are working the things that like we kind of need to work on a little bit and she's like well you know what at one point when you left the room they were at they asked if you were if you were okay because <laughs> they seemed like they said mm-hmm. that you didn't seem like super gung-ho um Mm -hmm. and i I was like well i mean first of all i'm in a pre-production meeting for seven hours but uh i felt like i was pretty normal if i see potential for something to be better if i think something's not quite working right like my instinct isn't to be like i love it (laughs) you know my instinct Mm -hmm. is like hmm how can we make this work you know and if and especially if a client or said you know someone's hiring me to do a job and they're like do you think this is working well then I if I don't think it's working well I'll say you know what I I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there's like like this could be better you know and I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people in the client agency relationship that will be like um yeah no I love it it's great it's awesome let's make it even more awesome you know I don't know I guess it's just a problem I have that I'm like not just like saying everything is like amazing all the time and i do know that like the director is kind of has to like Mm -hmm. at some point like captain the ship not just from like hey let's put the camera here but from a hey guys everything's awesome Mm -hmm. you know point of view just a weird thing and i guess i'm just talking about it because you know i i just think like for our listeners point of view especially like newer people or people that like have done shorts or features or like sketches but not really commercial things like that there's this I'm not calling it politics because it's not like there's nothing subversive I, I in any of this.
2: Yeah, there's um, not, I don't think it's inaccurate to call it politics. I hear what they are saying as a person who oftentimes has maybe like a, a default thinking face that's maybe a little sour. <laughs> I fucking tap dance at a PPM. <laughs> I like I one time I was we were shooting overseas and I had a a DP who's an old pal and is quite affable very charming, British accent, good looking guy, like quick on his feet, like the perfect, like put him in front of client sort of DP. And he didn't have anything to do, so he joined us for the PPM. I thought, oh, you'll get a little bit more up to speed on everything. And he teased me about how sweaty I was on that PPM. He was like, oh, this is so entertaining. You're just like working the room. Like, he teased me about it for years truly yeah um i
3: don't like i i i feel like if i actually get annoyed when the producers are like when they're like hey uh yeah we you know we told you to make the whole set blue like let's make it brown now because like we were just like watching something we saw something blue and we didn't really like it mm -hmm. so let's make it brown and when the producer's like yeah no problem that's awesome brown okay let me just send an email to okay cool brown yeah awesome love that idea and i'll be like uh why are we changing it? To yeah, brown? like blue is going to look so much better. We had this whole thing. I had this whole presentation. Why are you just sure. saying yes instead of? Like, uh, that's bad producing. S- that's, that's bad
2: producing. That's that's bad producing for sure. Like, integrity, yeah, uh, and but also the explosion. This is we are talking about the politics <laughs> of it. That reaction. Yeah. I've done both. I've done both, and i I almost always I regret if I back down without doing my best to try and keep it blue instead of brown and i definitely regret when i react the way i'm feeling sometimes like if we're tired we're stressed out i really like sold through blue 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 i know that the blue jeans are going to look perfect you know there's a whole yeah, thing and that also you we haven't know totally that now articulated.
3: our production designer and, and the right. whole art yeah. team instead of making these other things awesome they're going to go back and make this kind of half or
2: one time set. I didn't cry in front of a creative director, but my voice cracked. I was a grown ass man. I knew that my team had like worked literally overnight to make this thing awesome. I'd really pushed for it. And they were like, we want it different. And I was like, you're making it worse. <laughs> it's like, I get that it is emotional, but, but I think it's hard to remember that advertising and studio filmmaking are kind of customer service jobs in ways that we don't want to admit and so part of i think the success of a commercial filmmaker is yeah the work has to be good but also like client doesn't know if the commercial is going to be good or not so all they can do is look to the to you and the other people for cues because they're going to go home they're going to go back to chicago or whatever wherever they live their boss is going to be like how did the set go and if they're like look at this awesome selfie of with me on set with the celebrity and i had a great time and the director was so charming and we had a, everybody's i think it's going to be great that sets you off on the right foot and that's oh that's easier said than done um and i have been on your side of the coin many many times and to my detriment i (laughs) I would say and the flip side is also true we i think we always deal with this thing of like oh if you back down you don't make it as good as it could be you end up with a crappy reel then you worked your butt off and you didn't see your family for two weeks and uh for nothing for like um whatever your day rate is and that's not good either
3: i'm still a believer that at the end of the day like making good work is like what will get you the job much more than like um impressing the clients with your charm,
2: a hundred percent. Yeah, charm only gets you so far. The work is going to is what's going to book it for you. However, you can do both, and I think that you, we both have done that many times. Um, and it's worthwhile to do it again, right? Because the the flip side is also true of like producers decide to put us up for work partially on how good our work is, but also. Partially on us being good collaborators, and part of collaborating on the production side is making client happy. And the, and and that's not. I'm not saying advocating be a pushover. I'm not saying just roll over and and paint things brown. But I guess it's mm-hmm. just we're just talking about tact a little bit. You know what I mean?
3: Like obviously today, I like I'm just making up this example of brown and blue. Sure, of it's course. Something yeah, that happened yeah. today. I don't feel like I was explosive. I feel like I expressed at times like hey like there was a controversy about whether we should- I'm not
2: saying I'm not saying that you are right or wrong or that the person who pulled you aside you could have been smiling the whole time and they just missed the one time you sneezed or whatever what well, I'm trying to extrapolate out because none of us were in the room to just kind of add a little context to like oh this is this is frankly the worst yeah. part of advertising you know
3: yeah like again it's important I just I just can't do the like fake Loving things when I don't love it. It just comes up. I just am bad at it. And like all my favorite directors that make the work that I aspire to make, even like talking to Cassie last week, she's like, if I don't love it, then I'm like not the right person for the job, you know?
2: And I'm not saying pretend you always advocate finding the things to be excited about. Right. And then you have to stand up for the things that you believe in especially if you think that somebody is compromising something to make something worse for no good reason because of a whim. But I'm saying that there's an art to persuading people to bringing them, keeping them on your side, basically. I'm not saying roll over. I'm certainly not saying that. Having known you for a long time now, you see the evolution of a person and their career and their work. And the way things ebb and flow in terms of your relationships and your standards and the ways in which one communicates over the years. And I think, like, I know f- I personally got um, a little lazy and it makes you seem ungracious, you know. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not getting phone calls from that company anymore because they don't think I'm committed or or I'm bad with client or whatever. You know, like, you don't want that to happen either. That's all
3: yeah no i agree i mean and and but today like i didn't think like anything really went wrong i'm just digging for i'm trying to to analyze why i got that comment and it and i the only thing i can come up with is that when someone said su- suggest an idea i didn't like i was like nah <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: yeah um and then and i might have come off as negative
2: the real goal is if you're just if you're a name brand director then they're aiming to please you you know what i mean
3: yeah michael bay is not
2: biting his tongue when uh you know he's shooting a commercial or something
3: right right and in this scenario too i feel like they want me to be happy and it bothered them that i wasn't happy you know Mm -hmm. just interesting crazy
2: Um, stuff yeah
3: so i guess it's just something i'm going to work on is trying to be happy but not you know compromise like kind of what i think is going to make the best commercials. Before we talk to our buddy, Pat Bishop, I want to remind people that we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot a Pod. It's a place that you can go. You can give us a few bucks. Trying to do things with the podcast. Trying to pay our editor. Trying to pay for our server stuff. Trying to have a live event that we keep threatening to have. Um, and we also have a, a producer on with us right now. Tyler Small. What
2: up, Tyler? Tyler
3: W. Small on TikTok. Check him out. Tyler P-Y-L-E-R-W, small.
2: Tyler, say hello. Hello, everybody. I feel like I should say
4: something good in producing. Yeah, what are you? Are you a filmmaker? Uh-huh. Yeah, Who's I'm
3: uh, a filmmaker, longtime listener, first-time producer of this show. He was a patron. I was. I have uh-huh. my hat. I wear it pretty often.
2: Editor Noah is going to be so jealous. I know Noah's been listening for a while too. Didn't get an intro like this.
3: Noah could literally just edit himself into this and we wouldn't even know.
2: (laughs) No time like the
4: present. Hi. Hello. Settle down. Pour yourself a glass of wine. And welcome to Just Edit, a podcast within a podcast. Today we're going to be talking about seizing the means of production.
2: Patreon.com slash pod is the place where you can throw us a couple bucks to show your support for the show. Keep it going. Let's talk to our good pal, Pat Bishop, after a word from our sponsors.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is
1: Okay, Pat
3: Bishop, back on the show.
2: This is the second episode with Pat Bishop. So I, I just looked it up. It's episode 96. <laughs>
4: don't listen to this before you listen to that. It's yeah, all yeah. going to be... You will be so
2: lost. Everything. <laughs> um, but truly, I don't think I'd watched uh, much of the show when we had you on. And I... Corporate. I love it, man. Yeah, it was it was so corporate, great. Um, And Pat's, like... That's first show. Kind of insane that it got made for multiple seasons, it only got weirder and stranger. I know you were making a joke about cult obscurity, but like
4: often I was just like, oh man, they're like going for it. Yeah. This is dark. We, uh, <laughs> did, we had a really interesting patch in comedy centrals history where it was, it was right after workaholics. So the mm-hmm. door was open to like a new workplace comedy, but you know, we obviously had a different bent on it as a, making it a really dark comedy, but it was also at a time when they were willing to try something different because they're kind of caught in not mm-hmm. having a streaming platform and, mm-hmm. and kind of like having trouble getting their stuff out there. So they, you know, were willing to take a swing on something that's like a cinematic, you know, mm-hmm. uh half hour comedy. And, and they, they, they're also just, you know, really great people over there who really supported comedy, like Kent alterman, you know, they were putting stuff like Nathan for you on mm-hmm. at that time mm-hmm. and like giving that a lot of seasons. So yeah, I think, you know we just took the opportunity to make the best show we could and go as crazy as we wanted to and do everything we wanted because it seemed like it didn't even seem like trying to make something more mainstream was really going to make the difference mm-hmm. uh in mm-hmm. terms of getting an audience the kind of hope was like let's create something that uh you know can hopefully be seen by future generations when this content gets sold to the right kind of streaming oh, platform. sure sure yeah, yeah.
2: Least, yeah wh- when Comedy Central is absorbed, Viacom <laughs> is absorbed into Disney Ultra, maybe you'll get a, a thumbnail um, yeah. on the mega mega streaming platform. There, there
3: is a genre of like crazy shows, right? Like from starting with Mr. Show or kind of like more like the sketchy shows back in the day. Um, like it seems like it fits into this place that would have like a, a big fandom
4: yeah and i think we tried you know to make I mean? it you know stand the test of time or the comedy not topical or things so it's like the pandemic made an office comedy feel behind <laughs> sure. the times in a weird way so i thought we could always relate about going yeah. to work and your annoying boss it's like no it's yeah bumping into co-workers <laughs> the, oh boy the final season of it yeah came out during the pandemic which was a little but we'd obviously shot it and written at all before the pandemic. So I'm sure it was surreal for people to be watching things taking place in an office, uh, that weren't addressing that. But luckily, you know, the show was always trying to hit bigger themes than that. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, too tied to that, that specific reality. It I think speaks to all sorts of depressing versions of life. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Does a show that has three seasons on comedy central, this is like a total, like, question from someone that doesn't know how tv distribution works nowadays like is syndication still a thing like does it sell to like netflix and like yugoslavia or anything like that
4: i feel like that no longer exists yeah it's on paramount plus right now because it's yeah owned by viacom but i I feel like for syndication it's really about if things had to blow up in the first place to get super popular and Mm -hmm. then you know the streaming platforms all all want them but it's you have to like have proven yourself initially either by you know a age gone by when you first like aired on tv or if you were i don't know on a cable thing that also had a good streaming platform that you could
2: right right you know like stranger things is getting distributed across what i mean netflix is a global brand at this point but like you patch your point is like it kind of has to be a mega hit in order to kind of break out of whatever the initial release strategy was is that what you're saying basically
4: yeah and i, st- I still hold out hope I, there's a weird w- world where more people could see corporate than i've ever seen it this far if it just finds its way under the right you know streaming platform or at the right time which is mm-hmm. that's just a weird weird thing to think about now of like things just bouncing around throughout you know the decades to come yeah, I think you have to think about things being seen seen in a time far beyond when you're making them now, right. which is which is a right. weird thing that I think didn't used to be true as much more you would assume people watch with TV, especially, you know, movies, I guess were always meant to be more kind of timeless. But now, TV, I feel like also you have to consider that it could be around for a long time and and try to not make it too tied to the current day,
2: yeah. well, and I, it's funny you made the point about the final season coming out in the pandemic no one would realize that now do you know what i mean if they're cruising around paramount plus they're like oh this show looks interesting the it's kind of decoupled from that release date everything was released before the pandemic in a certain sense or during the pandemic or whatever it kind of doesn't matter you know what i mean we'll see in a decade or two how Mm -hmm. artists especially like depicting this era decide to like deal with the pandemic right because we all just kind of like pretended it didn't exist in the world of television now it feels a, a little strange to, to have just pretended none of it happened you know what i mean
4: but i think that it's that problem of it dates it so much even by the time it comes out you know probably sure. things have evolved yeah. and it's yeah and it's all yeah it just makes it feel so stuck in this shitty time we all want to forget anyway (laughs) i don't don't want to even scrolling through my imdb page i don't want to be like oh yeah that whole
2: yeah yeah you don't want to like a selfie on set wearing a mask even you're just like never mind
3: yeah Yeah. people are always pitching themselves like to our podcast like oh we made this this feature all during covid with like all the restrictions and all these things and like it's still watchable which is like usually (laughs) questionable and we're like yeah we don't like we don't want to talk about it about COVID yeah. stuff, like how yeah. impressive it is that you made. Like we yeah. get it's, it. We um, keep hoping this will. And we actually detest the people that were productive during COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, so speaking Pat, of Pat, yeah. <laughs> the question really was like, if you make three seasons of a show that's on TV, like does that mean you're rich, or, or is there a certain number of seasons where it's like? Uh, you know, like, oh, the second season, we're going to get paid twice as much. And the third season, we're going to get paid four times as much. Um, Or does it just mean like, hey, now you're this pretty much like trusted showrunner, producer, creator. We're going to give you a show on like a bigger platform, you know, with more money, and bigger yeah. budgets.
4: It's really the latter and not at all the former of like, well, season two, you got to pay us so much if you want. No, it's like your yeah, radians are like barely enough for us to continue the show so you have Mm -hmm. no negotiating power to (laughs) increase your salary and um but you know yeah also i i kind of have two producing partners in uh jake weiss and Matty bretson who started corporate and the three of us created it together you know we knew we wanted to keep working together as um producing partners and by season two of corporate we're show running so yeah we kind of knew even before corporate was done, we ideally should have another show set up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we kind of thought, who are our talented friends who we would want to work with and we could we think we could, you know, make a TV show out of? And so we developed a few different things with a few different people. Um, but the one that ended up going somewhere was with uh, Chris Estrada, who was a stand-up. And Matt Jake and I had all met doing stand-up years ago. And so I think, you know, have uh, felt a sort of similar work ethic that I think a lot of standups have of like a rigorous sort of sense of both introspection and sort of like writing, like working on your craft. Um, So Chris Estrada, when we started meeting with him and talking about what a show would be like, you know, we also found that he was really kindred spirit and his work ethic. And um, the other key thing was. Um, that we all love movies. Um, and this mm-hmm. was really true of Chris Estrada as well, um, that we appreciated that type of storytelling and wanted to make a TV show that was cinematic, but also, you know, not not simplistic um, mm-hmm. in its storytelling. So I think it was that mixed with all our love of hard jokes and hard comedy from doing stand-up. And, you know, I think none of us are really fans of, dramedies in general, Mm -hmm. or kind of like felt like we all agreed about wanting to make something that was very funny, but also had a deeper storytelling to it. And so, yeah, developed it over the course of maybe a year or so. And then, and then sold it in 2019. And and we pitched the show basically as, uh, the movie Friday, if it was directed by the Coen brothers. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like a hood comedy, but with a more kind of artistic cinematic bent, um, to it. And and the other thing that was a real reference point for us and important to the show was a kind of movie a reference point that represents this is, is this movie Killer of Sheep, which is a movie that Chris Estrada turned us on to. It's this black and white movie from, I believe, the 60s made by Charles Burnett, um, who was an African-American filmmaker, and he made it about his life in Watts. Um, and it's, it's just sort of really kind of grounded real life stuff with a sense of humor and a kind of real dry wit um, to it that I think was inspirational for us in the sense of like making a story about working class people mm-hmm. and reflecting real life in a way that you don't want to overly sensationalize it. Or, you know, an interesting thing about the show is it's set in South Central, which is often, uh, you know, kind of commodified as like the birth of hip hop and and mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, exciting uh sure kind of yeah sexy place um with danger and whatnot. But we we wanted to like show, you know, there is that aspect to it, but we were interested in following you know, Chris grew up there and Mm -hmm. was into punk rock. You know, he was a yeah a more kind of unique person who didn't fit into the the mainstream version of what people see there. But really it's a it's a community of that's a mix of Latino and African Americans and that's what we wanted to kind of explore in the show. But um, nerds live story. there too. Yeah, exactly. Right. Just
3: real quick about the pitching of the show is uh like you said, it's like if Friday was directed by the Cone brothers, is that like, literally, do you put that like on the cover of like your deck that you're pitching or do you like walk out and you're like, okay guys to obviously some hip yeah, hop. It's, rock, it's that, like,
4: it's that classic Hollywood. Yeah. Blank meets blank way. You have to like reduce things. But I, I actually, I find it's very helpful to find those sort of phrases that Mm -hmm. cause ultimately you do have to boil the show down. It's like, and and when you, you know, and you, you learn that too when the show comes out in the marketing, it's like there's one photograph with the show title and a tagline. That's Mm -hmm. what the show is. That's what it gets boiled down to. So you might as well find these things that are, you know, obviously stripping it down and missing the complexity of it, but, but do communicate it simply because it also, it allows you to get on the same page with the executives that you're Mm -hmm. selling the show to. And so you create the same expectation, um, in their mind. And I think we did a good job back when we sold corporate to, I don't remember exactly the blank meets blank, but we were like, you know, it's a, it's a dark surreal office comedy or it's, you know, it's treated like a drama and, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, yeah, it's really important. I think when you're selling a show to be able to articulate what, what you want it to be that way down the road, when you deliver on that, nobody's surprised and there's not some
0: confusion
4: and they, you know, didn't realize what you're actually doing. So as I look at the show now, I think it really delivers on that kind of way of describing it of. Friday directed by the Coen brothers. Um,
2: well, I, I, what I love about that mentality also is that it's easy to, when you're pitching or when you're first starting to work with different companies, you know, you, there's a few point people that you have. You have really close relationships with a few executives, but there's a whole network of people who have to work on your show kind of behind the scenes, right? Like they're running the Twitter account or like doing the media spend or like art directing the post or whatever it is, right? There's a bunch of other like machinations of, of, you know, television. Um, and all of those people need to understand what the show is as well. And their bosses have to explain it or the, the bosses have to explain it to the, the people who are actually going to have to execute, right? So if you have that shorthand, you're just giving it to them, So that everyone gets on the same page immediately, rather like if it's too complex, all of a sudden it's like it's open to interpretation. And all of a sudden, you know, you're you're getting art that's, you know, off base or people your Twitter account is weird or, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that things are going to go sideways. And so it's easy for people to think like, oh, that's oversimplifying your show or something like that. But like no executive wants you to have a dumb, simple, straightforward show that's not deeper than a tagline. But you need a tagline to get people on
4: board in the first place. I do really find it's a job of communication, like being a showrunner or being creatively at, at the lead of something, and it's it better not just be in your head. The better you can articulate it, the better you can allow people to do their jobs and mm-hmm. you know invest themselves in it. If you have a clear understanding of it. And I think, yeah, it really makes a difference to even just like in the writer's room. If we, if we know what we want and we know what the show is and what it's not, everybody has a better time.
3: So you had this awesome comparison. You had your personalities and kind of your logline. Did you have a script or did you have like, what other materials did you have when you went to pitch the show?
4: Um, We had a a treatment um, that broke down the main character's You know, the main synopsis of the show. We had some episode ideas, but really it was uh, the pitch itself, the verbal pitch was Chris telling a lot of stories Mm -hmm. from his life Mm -hmm. um, in a way that was showed the kind of uniqueness of the show or what it would be based on. You know, it's not just we're not just making it up out of thin air. There's a life experience, there's a worldview, there's a specific point of view um that this is built around so i think people really responded to that foundation Mm -hmm. um and that was also built on yeah chris as a person but also matt jake and i could be there as the people you could trust to execute it turn it into something um cinematic Mm -hmm. in the in, in the vein of you know what we had done on Corporate, even though, you know, we pitched the show as different from corporate. We were like, don't worry, it's not going to be so dark and sure. <laughs> nihilistic. <laughs> right. It's like there's going to be actual humanity in this show. And I think that's part of what was exciting to us, too, creatively about moving in this direction and building something where Magic and I could all be contribute a lot, but also allow Chris Estrada to be the one at the center of it who is deciding... You know, the kind of confines of the show, what mm-hmm. what it is and what it's not, um, but also bringing a different point of view that we could relate to. And I think we shared a, a comedic sensibility, but also was unique and allowed us to, you know, kind of through listening, learn more about a world that we didn't know too much about.
3: How does that work? Like, I guess when you, you have three guys that did not grow up in South Central and you're pitching this show, so you're already four people um where one one of you kind of knows the details of the world and i think you know and especially in comedy in a show like this like the details are what make it funny you know right like there's these guys racing remote control cars blocking your driveway like that's maybe not something you know and if if you ask them to move they'll beat you up and maybe that's like not something from your childhood but it is from his childhood like how do you guys like in the writer's room like all contribute you know what i mean
4: well, I think good writing is a mix of things that are specific and things that are universal. So, you know, I think these stories or these experiences that are unique um, to Chris, we also want to find what are the ways that these relate to people, you know, beyond that. And I think just seeing what, what we respond to um, following that and seeing what, what what's good about a writer's room, too, is you get a larger group of people um, to kind of bounce experiences and, and ideas off of, to see what do we all kind of connect to, and where do we disagree, or um, that. So I think it's 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 good in some ways to that we're not all just from South Central and <laughs> we grew up there, and we all get it. It's it's nice to have to explain it and reflect on it from all these different um, people's point of views and experience to see what is unique about it or, and what's, uh, mm-hmm. interesting about it. And so, you know, just, I, it, I, yeah, I think it's that, that balance.
2: Well, and I imagine also as a group of stand-ups, right. Um, the you're all kind of trained to, um, test out basically, uh, on stage, what, what's resonating with people right like that stand-up never assumes that their life experience is going to be reflected identically within every single person in the room so it's like how do you make that connect and make sense but with specificity right um and I, i wonder if those instincts were A part of the the writer writer's room in any specific way? Like, were the other writers were they standups as well? Where where were the rest of the people? What was what were their experiences like?
4: Yeah, there were multiple people from who we knew from standup, but then there were some people who yeah had more just of TV writing background. But yeah, I I think you know Chris's standup material, kind of part of what we were attracted to about it works for you know, alternative comedy rooms in L.A. Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, intellectual, it's interesting, but it also works, uh, you know, in bars full of drunk people um, Mm -hmm. across the country. So it has that also lowbrow and highbrow kind of aspect to it that I I, I do think is a thing to learn from stand-up comedy um, that, you know, the way to make your big ideas go down smooth is to relate them to something more visceral
3: that is really interesting the highbrow and lowbrow combination i mean there is that joke in in the first episode where um you know he's kind of talking to his cousin who's a former gang member where he does talk about the life expectancy of like a gang member and there is like obviously talking about life expectancies does seem highbrow and like you said like the, the good writing is kind of like the combination of specificity and generality and I guess I, I would think that now that you've made four seasons of TV that you would be on the specifics of like what makes this funny or what are the details that make this funny. You probably have like a good sense of like story mechanics and episode arcs and character relationships and like a balance of like who should we be, be with in this scene. And um, like I'm curious a little bit about uh, that's a very, a very general question. But like what makes a good episode of TV, it's, you know, in, in a comedy show?
4: You want to be focused and, um, it's sometimes a struggle for us to not put characters in an episode or, mm-hmm. um, to let, to figure out, to balance it out throughout the season by kind of zeroing in on certain characters in certain episodes, the more time you can spend with a character, the, the more complex a story can be. Um, and I also think we on this fool wanted to avoid being formulaic um about things or that really just wasn't our instinct it, it wasn't really like a thing we had to actively avoid we we're just drawn to these different things i think it's because to the first season very much was based on these various stories from chris's life mm-hmm. that you know didn't naturally coalesce into a serialized he didn't break his life story arc <laughs> Right. So. Yeah, it would have been a lot easier if he had <laughs> yeah, gone yeah. through the hero's journey. Oh just man, this, I found, I feel yeah. so cathartic. Um, um, yeah, but I think that's also what I am drawn to. I feel like as as a viewer, is is things that feel not like they happen because that gets us from point you know A to B in the story, but it 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 feels like oh that must have been the first idea they came up with, you know for this, or that's so unique or offbeat, everything is built around that. So I think we, we tried to build a plot that's satisfying and, you know, builds and goes from point A to B around these different things that just interested us for their own reasons. And, you know, I, I think what becomes interesting is when you put all that stuff back to back and, and there's this process of, you know, ordering it into into these different storylines. And then where do the episodes go in relation to each other um, to see how it how it builds together? It's the bigger story you end up telling is kind of surpri- can surprise you or mm-hmm. it's, you know, and it's not so linear in the case of this show, which is trying to be episodic as well. It's got these all these loose ends in a
3: way. And what do you mean by that, that you can? Um that you can just kind of tune in to an episode and still be satisfied without seeing kind of like the previous episode.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And that we also, I think both in, in this fool and in corporate often think about episodes in terms of theme and what, especially if there's an A and B story, you know, kind of what is tying this together um, and trying to explore something within an episode versus like as another episode of your favorite characters,
2: I'm curious though, Pat, you'd said like, oh, you want them to feel episodic. You want people to kind of like let them feel like they stand alone. But in the case of This Fool, that was that's a Hulu show from the beginning, right? And so always intended to be streaming, always intended to be on demand. Presumably your audience will start at the beginning, right? Like I think viewer patterns have kind of shifted. What was the thinking behind Wanting them to feel standalone, and, and what, did you ever flirt with the idea of making making them even more serialized?
4: We have a a kind of principle that we try to abide by that every episode should be able to be somebody's favorite, because there's some scene in it, some idea in it, something that somebody could personally relate to. You know, I think the idea of it being episodic in our mind is 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 trying to make it that there can't just be a filler episode or something that's serving a purpose, but isn't unto itself interesting. It's kind of a test for ourselves in a way of like, if you only watch this episode of the show, would you know the show's point of view, what the show has to say, or would you just have caught some middle piece as I've kind of like been writing and trying to still study the structure of writing. One thing I, I keep trying to wrap my head around is that within every larger kind of structure, like a three act structure or whatnot, you know, there's all these mini versions of it, mm-hmm. you know, like whether it's a TV, a season of TV, each episode is like a mini version of that, you know, season arc. Sure. And within that episode, there's individual storylines and within each Act, there's this like, kind of each line of dialogue is a, has I a mean, beginning middle and end you know uh,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah you know truly though a, a, a joke that's sort of true like there, are it, the nested russian dolls you do get down into something that's pretty granular I, i've thought about that a lot as well
3: how much do you feel like you found your own way of like making tv versus like you learned on season one of corporate from like some experienced tv person like this is how you put the pizzas together and this is the blue sky thing and this is the mechanics and here's like the note cards like You know, tell me a little, tell us a little bit about like, how, like, can anyone just go and make TV or is there stuff that you need to learn before you you do it?
4: Yeah. I feel like I've always been paranoid about like somebody who knows the rules of TV coming in and Mm -hmm. turning it into everything else. It's like, in some ways I'm, you know, reacting to what I see out there, which is a lot of formulaic stuff um, that doesn't feel inspired. So you know, I th- I think coming from and, and I, it's also interesting because I never worked in TV as a writer or a director before I sold my own shows and was basically running the writer uh, along with um, Matt and Jake running the writer's room, directing, you know, and running the post-production as well. I'd worked as an editor on some sketch comedy TV shows. But, yeah, I really uh, wasn't pushed into the deep really, end,
2: basically. Yeah.
4: Yeah, but the the way that I felt prepared for it was i had spent years um, shooting my own stuff and making short films, making sketch videos, um, made hundreds of sketches, you know, over the years where you're writing it. Uh, I was often directing it, shooting it myself, editing it and going through that process and also releasing it online, typically getting feedback mm-hmm. and that thing. So I felt like I understood how to develop something from start to finish and kind of have an idea and then execute it um, and have it come out the way, you know, you, you envisioned or, you know, you figure things out along the way, but having that ability to see something from beginning to end um, was I think the the key to being able to Make a TV show when I had the opportunity and to not let it spin out of control or like turn into something I didn't mm-hmm. want it to be. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it was Comedy Central's instinct to pair Magic and I with a showrunner, season one of Corporate. And, um, you know, we interviewed a lot of people. Some of them, uh, most of them were from network TV. And we just, you know, didn't want to let it be watered down under mm-hmm. any circumstances. So we heard this guy, Jake Fogelnest, who was uh, a friend of ours as well as a, as a good writer. Um, and but someone we trusted to let us do our thing, who seemed the most kind of like excited about doing something different um, and versus turning, feeling like he knew everything and gonna, mm-hmm. was going to turn it into a classic TV show. So, you know, I think we made it harder on ourselves <laughs> to kind of like no, we don't want to follow the rules. Uh we'll come up with it on our own even though, you know, it's the most interesting stuff kind of secretly follows the rules but you can't tell um that it's doing it.
2: I feel like so often, especially when you're younger and you're kind of collaborating with people, being clear, back to your point about communicating the the point of the show, the idea behind the show, the north star it's not just is the is the pitch funny or not. So there's lots of people who have like funny ideas or funny anecdotes or whatever that could be a good show, right? But like discerning, the showrunner is really there to discern like, is this in service of the big idea or not? Funny is kind of just like the baseline that we all have to start from. If you don't have funny ideas, then you probably didn't make it into the room in the first place. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah. It's easy to make it funny. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or it should be the job of a showrunner can be to like help figure out what is the vision, even if the showrunner isn't the one providing the vision. If the, sure. you know, star, star of the show or somebody is, it's helping build off a, a foundation and kind a of thing. And I, and I also have learned just from shooting TV and, and the directing side of things to be production savvy and to, and to build it into your creativity in the writing room. Cause that's, that's a lot of things that I think a lot of writers do not have that experience, um, and they just don't know how much things cost. There's mm-hmm. there's so mm-hmm. many times like a writer will pitch like, why, and this, we should do this like on a bridge, cause it would be, you know, like, yeah, have this backdrop. And I'm be. like, "That you're exactly right yeah. about how that would be great for the scene for all the reasons you just said, but we can't, we can't afford to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be how would it <laughs> happens on the same place where everything else in the show happens. You
2: uh, directed the vast majority of corporate. And then is that true mm-hmm. for this fool as well?
4: I did uh, the pilot and half the first season. Yeah, there um, you go. And then, yeah, Matt directed a few episodes and, and um, we had a, a guy, Diego Velasco, who directed two episodes, one of which was was very Spanish heavy um, and we wanted to bring in a, a fluent Spanish speaker.
2: Well, so the shows are very different looking. They feel different. They're very, their corporate is very meticulous. It's like shallow depth of field. Everything's you know, on sticks or dolly. It's all quite deliberate. There's very like wide angles. It's a very specific cinematic look. You know, I feel like you, years ago now when you were first on the show, said there was a heck of a lot of like fight club stills in that pitch deck, right? Yep. And then this fool is like, there's a lot of handheld. There's a lot of two shots. You know, it's much more active in that way. It's more saturated too. Like mm-hmm. the color palette's like very different. Like yep. you wouldn't guess that that one person was the main voice behind the look and feel and tone of, of of both shows basically so talk to us about how like what you learned from corporate and why why this fool looks the way it does and maybe some of the things that you learned along the way
4: what's interesting is also the same cinematographer from corporate oh, that's, that's Christoph Plantenberg and our yeah. same production designer um, you know we were able to Carry a lot of our crew from corporate um, awesome. onto, onto this fool, which is which is really great. Um, and it was wanting to be more naturalistic about things. Um, and I think you know it's it's been really nice to see the, the response to the show people every now and then somebody mentions the cinematography and I was talking to, to my cinematographer about that. I was saying that's exactly what we're going for. <laughs> we don't, we don't want everybody to be talking about the cinematography. Yeah, want yeah, you're it, not shooting uh,
2: handmaid's tale, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> it should be in the background. And I, and I think similarly, a lot of people um, on, on Twitter say the show as a compliment, say the show is stupid. And they're <laughs> sure. like, it's so funny. So stupid. But it's like, it's, yeah, yeah. we think it's, it's a smart show that we've made people think is stupid mm-hmm. and it's a like cinematic show where we've made people not pay attention mm-hmm. to the cinematography and that's kind of what we're going for. And, um, you know, I think we corp- yeah, corporate was calling attention in some way to the artifice of it, to the, the surreal kind of artificial nature of it. Whereas this fool is more grounded um, it's more based in reality. It's more naturalistic. And so, yeah, I had a, we used a lot of Steadicam on corporate and we had one of the only rules we had was no Steadicam on, um, this fool. Cause I, I think it gets caught a little in between a choice sometimes mm-hmm. between handheld or a dolly mm-hmm. thing. It's gets, it just a little floaty. It's a little like generically modern in mm-hmm. its look. So I wanted to, and going, and going back to some of the kind of like older reference points, like killer of sheep. It was this, or also we. Uh, some of the reference points were like um, Sin Nombre, the Kerry uh, Fucanagua's mm-hmm. first movie. And we, we found like a lot of our inspiration points visually were directors' first feature films before they had any money to mm-hmm. like <laughs> get fancy. And so I think we tried to, you know, when thinking about how do we visually execute this idea, whether it's a comedic set piece or, you know, an emotional moment, And instead of thinking, you know, what's the coolest way we can do it? We think, what's the simplest way we can do it? And we really didn't want to, like, Hollywoodify, you know, the stories. Um, Going back to what we were talking about of, like, it being about working-class people. It's not, like, you don't want to make this an an amusement park ride. Letting the action kind of speak for itself. Just putting the camera in the right place, um, but not hitting people over the head by moving it in as the character is having a dramatic moment, just like let them play it out. Or, you know, at the end of the pilot there's like this kind of unexpected rainstorm that happens and the kind of classic shot out of like, um, you know, uh, I'm trying, Shawshank Redemption is like mm-hmm. the overhead shot of the rain and the mm-hmm. character you like up, yeah, up yeah, into yeah. the <laughs> sky, the crane shot, yeah. and it's like, no, it's not... You know, we specifically wanted to avoid that. Um I don't yeah, again, just like since so I, how would you shoot that? Just like from ground level? Yep, just from ground level. We wanted to slow mo, you know, but it's it's more understated and just it's being kind of like Clint when, Eastwood, like you gotta make it to your golf <laughs> game. Yeah. yeah. At <laughs> so. It does it does help you make your day. Um <laughs> <laughs> but,
2: yeah, that's yeah. Cool, right? I know you were joking, but like, was there any influence of like, I recall corporate being pretty hard to make. Right. Um, and that like, you know, it was something where every setup was really intricate and complicated and, and, you know, making your day was a a bit of a challenge. Um, and you'd mentioned before being in the writer's room, understanding production more, you've got three seasons of TV under your belt, you know, uh, did you find your, the producer hat kind of leaking into directing decisions at all? And, and was that convenient or was there ever a moment where you you're like, Oh, maybe we've simplified this too much or, or, you know, how, how did, how has the experience and the, the understanding of the challenges of production changed the visual approach on this fool, I guess is what I'm searching for.
4: I think, um, <laughs> on the one hand, I've learned to predict problems more, but on the other hand, you know, you end up making the same mistakes over and over again <laughs> because that's your instincts. Or, you know what I what I find too—the stuff that that we like to write is very dense. Even mm-hmm. if you make it simple, it's there's a lot going on moment to moment. I think we. Pack it in there and have a sort of economy of information with our storytelling. Um, so within a scene, it's it's not just two funny actors improvising and saying mm-hmm. silly stuff. It's like there's a lot of moves to make. So yeah, you know, no matter how simple we try to make it in the location or whatnot, there's always stuff to get dig into um, mm-hmm. when you're directing because I think the writing has complexity. So.
1: That's also what I'm. It's
4: just tough to like convince the network to give you extra shooting time for that because sure. they can't. Sure. It's a hard time spotting that. I mean, similar to corporate, it, it still feels like we're under the gun all the time all when the we're time. shooting. So yeah. I've got a, I've got a shot list where I'm like, what shot can I cut? Um, uh-huh. All day long. That's like my, yeah. my job is to like figure out how can I turn these f- four shots into three shots. Um, and it makes you really ask yourself questions about the story or Mm -hmm. it like really makes you figure things out, figure out what can you cut away? What can you simplify? Um, And so it does lead to, you know, positive creative breakthroughs at a time, but, um, but yeah, you're always trying, I I just find I'm always trying to be ambitious on a budget that is busting at the seams. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's, it's always like, trying hard, or trying to cram it in there and trying to find that one corner you can cut.
3: Do you find that it's tricky that you're the showrunner and the director? Like you're in charge of making the day and making sure the director is doing all the right things to stay on budget and everything, but you're also the director that's trying to be creative and stretch the budget and do things that haven't been done before.
4: Well, it's helpful in the sense that, you know, all fixes are on the table. I don't need to, if, if it's, we need to, Sometimes the the um, answer is to change the script, you know, mm-hmm. on on the day of. And it's it's nice to have that ability and you know my co-producers are are there on set with me too so we can huddle up and and find that solution or you know there's one time on uh, shooting this season of this fool where we were going to move to a location later in the day. Um, it was a multiple location day and there is uh, a shooting at the second location or very close by. Um and we decided not to go. It was like a week after Alec Baldwin shot that cinematographer, mm-hmm. so it was like not good timing, even if there ever was. Yeah, yeah. People um, were on edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we decided, yeah, not to go there. And then it was we, we we're just like, well, do we really need to have that location? And we ended up rewriting it. Into the scene was going to be outside at a like julio coming back to his car and then we ended up just rewriting it to take place in a hallway outside of an apartment Mm -hmm. and we're like okay we'll just build a little bit more of this uh, apartment set um to play the scene out here and that way we don't have to go go back so um it's nice to yeah have the the option to rewrite stuff um during the production phase
2: did you ever um block shoot anything you know I, I kind of had thought like oh well if you're the director across a lot of the season maybe you can kind of cherry pick a little bit or you know amortize things a little bit save yourself a company move here and there
4: yeah definitely that's that's huge for the way that we work um yeah uh, cr- yeah cross and block shooting and yeah, yeah. it was even <laughs> corporate was an extreme of that, uh, it was just all day long. Matt and Jake were just like switching ties as we like <laughs> move the cameras around. It's like, it's now, and now you're in it. We would, I, I honestly think on corporate, we would average shooting at scenes from four or five episodes yeah. every shoot day yeah, rock um, and roll. yeah, to just solidify it. Yeah. This fool was a little more, uh, reasonable about that, but we, we definitely block stuff together. Um, for efficiency that's interesting
2: also because uh just thinking about with corporate like jake and matt are in the majority of the show so crossboarding gets a lot more complicated you know you were joking about switching ties but like switching out looks is kind of a bummer when you're you know jumping from scene to scene and episode to episode in a a single day whereas this fool is a little bit more of an ensemble so it's easier to kind of lump storylines together um were there any other sort of um differences that you noticed basically in in the production basically between corporate and this fool even from like a lighting perspective or things that got easier things you wish you had done from the beginning any of that stuff
4: worked on a stage more on this fool than we had on on corporate because on corporate we had the la times building Mm -hmm. which was this kind of big empty playground um And we did very little work on sets. Um, So with this fool, we we shot all the pilot on location, but then we rebuilt the Hugs Not Thugs workplace Mm -hmm. location. um, And we rebuilt the house um, interior. And, you know, it was it was it was cool to get to see how that works. And even the backyard of the house, we built uh, outside shot and shot, you know, outdoor scenes on a stage which I hadn't done before. Um, and Did you it, lit yeah.
3: it to look like daytime. Yep. And what, what was the, is there like sky or what's the,
4: yeah, what there is a, the a blue backdrop um, basically that had been hung around the perimeter of the set. Um, but we had, you know, limitations to that so there were also certain angles i had to avoid a little bit Mm -hmm. um and you had to be cautious (laughs) in how you visualize things um but at at the same time being on set you could work a lot more efficiently you could have more control over things yeah it was nice to have a home base Mm -hmm. to to work from
2: yeah you get a a little bit more comfortable do you have a preference looking at them now Location I mean, versus sets. I
4: yeah. always like location because it's it just gives you stuff you can. It's a big backdrop that you can take advantage of and kind of use what you've got. And I like the. It's
3: like it like inspires you, right? Like, oh, yeah. this is a cool angle.
4: Versus right? having to uh, pre-visualize mm-hmm. all of it, you know. I find I like bringing in that more in, unpredictable, idiosyncratic. Kind of aspect of things it's funny enough one thing um that we did on an episode of this full we, we were scouting bowling alleys and we mm-hmm. really liked this uh gross bathroom of this one bowling alley <laughs> we really liked it for some reason just the the look of it for the scene that we had to shoot in there and but we ended up picking a different bowling alley to shoot in but then we thought the the
2: pins on ventura
4: yes uh I used
2: I would write at that pin sometimes. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's great.
3: Key on the wall in their (laughs) (laughs) back.
2: No, it's like like super like so loud like crazy white noise, and I like to play pinball, so I would like go play some pinball and then just like hang out and get weird looks from parents anyway yeah we
4: chose it it had the kind of like chucky e. cheese vibe yeah uh, yeah, yeah definitely bowl, compared yeah. to the other bowling alleys we, we visited, yeah it's the uh, least a,
2: cool bowling alley you could find is what you're saying pat
4: and even and in, a, and in a in a bathroom with very little personality so we actually built almost an exact replica of the terrible bathroom from this other bowling alley on the stage that's funny and then shot the scene the kind of scratched up mirror and all uh <laughs> and shot the scene there but that was a Oh, kind one. of liver, and you liver. did that
3: before nathan uh, fielder did the <laughs> rehearsal sure yeah, yeah it's so funny working in your idea
4: working in film production yeah the stuff nathan fielder is doing is not as mind-blowing in terms sure. of yeah replicating things that's like yeah that's what you do that's You're like cool
2: fake snow <laughs> whatever man yeah <laughs> i mean i do think that's so
3: interesting like because you know what you said about like oh we shot in this house for the pilot and we shot in this center for the pilot and then we just rebuilt them on stage and you hear that a lot you know um and it, it just goes to show that it's like that real places are built in a certain way that gives you like a, a lot of character that if you're just like oh let's design a house like okay i guess living room like that's why like the sitcoms in the 90s every living room looks the same because they were not based on real houses they're based <laughs> on like a studio audience but now when we're trying to build things that look real it's like, yeah, just copy a real thing and then it'll it'll look real.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like location scouting is an aspect of, of directing that I've learned more and more to how to take advantage of and be inspired by and like let it reveal to you things about the story by imagining it in different locations or you know, and you can yeah, pick and choose aspects of different locations, even if you end up building the set. Um mm-hmm.
2: You Talk can, to us about the practicalities of that. Like, how has your process changed? Are you taking more photos? Are you bringing stand-ins? What's um, What's it like? What's, or is it just a mental thing?
4: It's, um, I mean, I, during Location Scouts, I go there with my cinematographer, among other uh, crew members, and he, he takes photos. Um, I kind of just let him go shoot things that are interesting to him. And then later we'll go back and look at the photos together. Um, And some places, you know, you know right away if it's going to work or not. Um, But other places, it's helpful to step away from it and look at the photos and and also through the the kind of lens of the camera, Mm -hmm. seeing how it's how you can make it look versus how it felt being there. So I've also learned to shot list from that. or be let some of my take advantage of the location scouts as a moment to like think about angles um Mm -hmm. and have that opportunity because also oftentimes you know we can't get back in there um until the shoot day right you know so it's like it's kind of the the first time you're looking at it when you don't even know if you're going to shoot there or at 10 other places you're looking at instead might be the only time you can really creatively work out where if we did the scene here what would it look like? What angles would we choose? Because um, when you come back for the tech scout, there's like 50 people there, and they right. there's and no time where
3: for, what angles you're shooting.
4: Yeah, it's right. not a good time for me and my cinematographer to like uh, wander around and noodle. Yeah, yeah, we've got to have the answers. So yeah. I, I've learned to yeah right away try to like dig into it, think about what is how am I going to stage this? And mm-hmm. because it's, it's nice to have those photographs that you can then think about and, and start letting the scene kind of percolate in your head before you come back there for the shoot day.
3: So what's uh, what's next is uh, can we expect another season of this fool? You've mentioned this season, the first season a lot.
4: They're uh, they're still holding us in suspense. Uh, unfortunately, oh. we, we are writing season two, um, but it is not officially happening.
3: Right. do so you get you get paid to write a season, but you don't know if you get you're gonna get to shoot it? Is that how it works?
4: Yep, that's how it, that's how it seems to be working for a lot of people these days.
3: So for people to watch, um, if they wanted to watch this fool right
4: now, they uh, just go to Hulu. Yep, stream it on Hulu. Pat, this
2: was great. Congrats again on all of your wonderful success. Uh, can Congrats. you hang out a a little bit longer to uh, endorse with us?
4: Yeah, can do. Unpaid
2: endorsements. Well, I'll kick it off with a recommendation for another podcast. Specifically, Chris Estrada uh, is on an episode of Bullseye from a couple weeks ago. And his interview was really great. Added uh, even more context to the whole story. I was like, oh, that's right. I should email Pat. Um, So bringing it full circle, thinking about this fool, thinking about Chris Estrada uh, and that Bullseye interview, I think um, is like a nice, complete... Uh, behind the scenes story of the thinking and conception of uh, this fool. So that's my endorsement. What do you got, Pat? What you got, sir? Uh,
4: I'm going to go with something that uh, helped me get through the pandemic, uh, <laughs> which is a, a show called Attack on Titan. I see some nods of recognition. It's a anime show that uh, I think it's on like Hulu and Netflix to some or different seasons are on different things, but there's like a bunch of seasons of it, but I. I caught up now and I finally watched them all. And there's like a final-ish season, I think, coming out like next year or something. So I've, I've now gotten on the bandwagon and uh, I'm ready to, to watch a week after having binged it recklessly.
2: Uh, Kathleen, what you got, buddy?
3: I mean, I got two movies and a tip. I'm in New York right now. I flew here. which means I saw two movies instead of writing the treatment that I said I was going to write while I was on that plane. First movie was Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. It's pretty awesome. It has like um, Pete Davidson is in it and Lee Pace. This actress Rachel Senate, uh, who is like the star of Shiva Baby, which is this other kind of popular indie film that came from a short film, in Amanda Stenberg, who's like uh, I think from Hunger Games, and Maria Bakalova from you know Borat. Just like a real, a real kind of eclectic cast, and it's just this murder mystery like teen party movie, but it's just. It's just really well done and well shot. And it's like very like punk rock. It's just fun. If you're kind of, especially if you're working on a movie, that's like trying to take place in one location in a house, That it feel, still feels original and interesting and has like lots of peaks and valleys. Um, I, I'd recommend it. It was really fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, Matt, I, I love to watch movies that Matt would not approve of watching on an airplane, on an airplane. <laughs> and so I also watched bullet train. <laughs> Have you guys seen that movie?
2: Oh, I'm Um, okay with action. It's when you go really painterly that I'm just... Like something quiet and introspective. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is really the perfect example of a movie that... A movie I I, loved on the airplane. I I don't know if I would say watch it
4: on an airplane.
2: Yeah, yeah, there you go.
4: I watched uh, Manchester by the Sea on an airplane, but I also... (laughs) My plane landed like the second the movie ended, and I was... I was going to Japan. So it was like not the right mood to like enter Japan for the first time.
3: The bullet train is good. It's like a bad movie. You know, I think it has like a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes or something, but it's like really fun. I think especially on an airplane. My tip in New York is I was trying to like cast funny actors and like find funny actors. And uh, this might be an obvious thing especially in LA, but like, I think it can work anywhere you go, which is like, just look up all the comedy schools, you know, and just go to their websites. And at the very least you'll find pictures of people that look funny, you know, to show your casting director and say like, Hey, like look at people that Mm -hmm. look like this, bring me those people. Or contact these people, you know, call this school and say, Hey, put yourself on tape for these auditions. Um, Because I feel like in LA you have just like so many funny people and the casting directors know all of them and like comedy casting is just really easy. But like when you go outside of LA, even to a place like New York, you know, you just have to, just have to work a little bit harder to find the people with like the comedy experience. Um, and so there's no, no more obvious place to start than the comedy schools. Um, and so just, just the thing, if you're looking for funny people, but I imagine it would work in, you know, like Cleveland, Ohio also, and mm-hmm. wherever, like uh, Washington, DC, uh, other places that, that have you know kind of theater circles but maybe are just not as like film production you know savvy
2: so yeah
4: i love that. yeah
3: um so that's all that's all i got well pat uh, can we find you on social media anywhere
4: i'm on twitter.com slash terrible town are we all still gonna stick around on twitter
2: i've been really i don't know at Twitter, uh, at Terrible Town. Um, is that the best place for people to keep track of all of your goings-ons and projects and whatnot?
4: Yeah, I pretty much only tweet to uh, talk about some, something on promotion these Perfect. days. So, Perfect. Yeah, you won't be-
2: yeah so if, if you're a fan of these shows, you want to keep track of what Pat's doing, Twitter.com slash Terrible Town is the move.
3: Cool. If you want to follow the show or add to Pod across all social media, you can tweet at us we'd love to hear from you yeah you can also follow me i'm on instagram i'm at oak Kaplan i'm on twitter i'm
2: at smitey pileg and i'm at mr matt Enlow across all social media this episode was edited by noah bayshore welcome back noah and welcome to the show tyler our new producer tyler are you, are you socials where can people follow you Ooh, no pressure um i am at tyler w small and everything
3: cool well thanks everyone uh well let you go with some music from the Free Music Archive and the Artist Jazar and we'll catch you next time. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.